Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34th. Who apparently doesn't recognize me. Hello, thank you, Chair. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Shauna East. I am proud to serve with you all here today. Our democracy is under attack. As we prepare to hold an election in the middle of a pandemic, Democrats must take a stand against voter suppression and in favor of the precious right to vote. That is why I'm proposing to increase voter participation by requiring government or party-run primaries with provision, provisions for voting by mail. This past February, I gained firsthand knowledge as to the shortcomings of the caucus system while serving as a precinct captain in Iowa, and I believe this change is essential for three key reasons. First, we must make our presidential selection process more accessible. Our charter assures all Democratic voters full, timely, and equal opportunity to participate and allows participation in good faith by all voters who are Democrats. Caucuses simply cannot fulfill this promise. Caucus rules create unique barriers to participation by requiring in-person attendance during a narrow window of time. Unsurprisingly, in four states which abandoned caucuses for primaries this year, voter participation increased two to six fold. If we care about expanding de democratic voter participation, why would we not require this change in all 50 states? Our delegate selection rules state that we will ensure accessibility in accordance with the Americans with Disabilities Act. While DNC rules state caucuses must be accessible, they imposed undue burdens on the disabled in practice. People with disabilities are up to 21% less likely to vote, and this participation gap is even worse in caucuses. The COVID-19 pandemic should also remind us of the need for an electoral model that allows for expanded mail-in participation. Caucuses will not do. Second, we must ensure that our presidential selection process allows for accurate and consistent reporting of results. On this front, caucuses pose a host of problems. Consider Iowa's rapid shift to a new reporting app. Out of 1,765 precincts, only 439 successfully submitted their results through the app. That's less than 25%. Many precinct captains were not able to report at all on caucus night, and it took over two weeks to finalize results. Errors like this are one reason why DNC Chair Tom Perez called the 2020 Iowa caucuses a, quote, major league failure. None of these problems would have happened if Iowa used a primary election to register voter preferences. It's time for a change. Lastly, problems with caucuses have undermined public confidence in the party and our presidential selection process. Here are just some of the national headlines surrounding the 2020 Iowa caucuses. Iowa caucus results riddled with errors and inconsistencies. How the Iowa caucuses became an epic fiasco for Democrats how the Iowa caucuses fell apart and tarnished the vote. As Professor Kathleen Hall Jamison of the University of Pennsylvania put it, the caucus fiasco called into question the integrity of voting and voter trust in the process. This is an outcome that could have been avoided with primary elections, which are far more routine, more accessible, and less error prone. The right to participate in elections should be open to all people, and our elections should employ fair, transparent, and accountable procedures. There are no doubt many other changes that need to be made to strengthen voting rights and counteract racist Republican ballot box discrimination, but that does not negate the reality that when compared to caucuses, 
Government or party-run primary elections expand voter participation. We should use these processes for presidential selection across all 50 states. I strongly urge you to vote yes on my amendment today. Thank you very much. All right, so I'll give you a little pause, I'll introduce you, and then we'll just get right in. And again, if you're not liking something, just say so, we edit, so it's not a big deal. Oh, sorry. Okay. So today we're speaking with Shauna East, who is a member of the DNC Rules Committee, and we're going to discuss a little bit about what happened at the Rules Committee hearing last week, and also about an amendment that she introduced to try to make the party a little bit more democratic. Welcome, Shauna. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. 100%. So first of all, let's talk a little bit about how you landed on the Rules Committee. How does that happen? How does one get to be a member of the DNC on the Rules Committee? Um, well, it wasn't, I wasn't naturally put on the committee. Basically, I was a founding member of People for Bernie Sanders. We started campaigning for Bernie before he even announced in 2015. Then I started the grassroots campaign Illinois for Bernie before the campaign came to our state well before, and so was doing a lot of work um, campaigning for Bernie. And then I was a staff member in 2016, and then I just kind of kept it going. And then when Bernie announced that he was running again, just started right back up with the grassroots stuff. And basically, I ran as a delegate. I did not make the cut. And... I just reached out to the campaign and said, you know, I have been doing this a long time. I would really like to be involved in some way. And that's kind of how I, they have to appoint people to the committee. Right. Um, every state is different, but in Illinois, basically the campaigns do it, the appointing. And then there's like sort of a procedural vote by the delegates, but there's only like the number of people that you would put on the committee. So it's just kind of a formality. Right. So I was technically elected, but yeah, really appointed. Really appointed, yeah. So that's how it sort of works at KDEM. All the it's it's voted on by the rest of the delegates. So if you want to be the member exactly. of the DNC, yeah, you have to go through that whole thing. Yes. And I would imagine that it's harder to get placed in either the rules committee or um, the credentialing committee. I would think that those are coveted positions. So it's interesting that you, as a Bernie Sanders person, was was able to land on that particular committee. Yeah, a colleague of mine that I've worked with with Illinois for Bernie, Maggie Wonderly, was, you know, re really a key part of like the Unity Reform Commission stuff and behind the scenes did a lot of stuff in 2016 and we work really well together. So she kind of pushed and I wanted to be on rules specifically because of my experience in Iowa. And I thought, you know, I might be able to at least bring up the subject. I didn't know how popular um, my amendment might be, but I thought it was something that possibly Biden folks could get behind because Biden did so terribly in Iowa. Right. So that's how I ended up on rules. Well, let's talk about that for a moment. You were a precinct captain uh, for Bernie Sanders in Iowa. So you saw firsthand a lot of the shenanigans that happened. And also, you know, some of the things that are just problematic with, with the caucus system, one of those being that if you are a working individual and you have to be at work, you can't caucus. I mean, there's all kinds of things exactly. that can hinder people from participating in that process. So you have an amendment that was meant to sort of make the, the system a little bit more democratic. So walk us through that amendment and what happened during the Rules Committee hearing. So I actually had three amendments and um, I'll get to this later, but we were told by the campaign to drop, to withdraw our amendments. So I ended up 
proposing one of the three, which was um, expanding democracy by increasing voter participation. Um, essentially, it would be eliminating caucuses. Um, there are, you know, I did a bunch of research and it actually is proven that the states that went from caucuses to primaries had much bigger turnout. Um, also, so I talk about accessibility. I talk about the flaws with sort of reporting and accuracy of reporting, which we found in Iowa. Um, and then I just talk about how bad it looked for the Democrats, like public relations wise. And, and just like, I didn't, I wanted to make it very palatable to the other side. Cause I obviously wanted to get people to vote on it. So I don't like call out the Democratic Party per se, but I do discuss how things like the app and like thing, you know, stuff that's set up sort of loosely without testing and without, you know, it really being thought through can be, you know, manipulated. Yeah. And what ends up happening is people, it, it, it leads to disenfranchisement. You know, people don't feel like there's any integrity to the caucus or the election you know, when these sort of large mishaps happen, right. you know, and this isn't the first time there has been criticism of the Iowa caucuses in the past. It seems like every four years, this is a conversation and it just ends up getting swept under the rug. Um, Iowa being the first contest, it's extremely important that we do something about this because I think it, what ends up happening is it's easily manipulated yeah. so that an, uh, establishment candidates have a better chance of gaining that sort of media, that traction in the media early on. I think, you know, if Bernie had won outright, he would have gone a lot farther and gotten more delegates and we would have better, better leverage right now. Mm -hmm. um, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah so I, oh, sorry. I thought you were done. Oh, no, that was my amendment was basically to, I did two amendments. One was to require government run primaries. And then my second amendment was to require government run or party run primaries with mail in provisions. Um, and then my third amendment was to extend the meeting time because they had the meeting. There was a bunch of funny business sort of with the plat, the, I don't know, the, the meeting itself, the parameters of it. Um, and the platform committee meeting got extended to four hours, which it ended up going over. Um, we didn't know if Barney Frank was going to allow more than a couple hours. So I was going to try to extend it, but we didn't end up needing that because they asked us to drop our amendments. So, well, let's talk about that for a moment. Uh, so it was the, Ber somebody from the Bernie Sanders campaign contacted you the night before and asked you guys to drop these amendments. Um, actually, we hadn't heard from Bernie's campaign at all during the pre-meeting process. So our the basically the um, the rules committee typically meets just a couple days before the convention. So say the Saturday before a convention starts on Monday, we would meet and all the amendments would be made, motions made. You know, you get to meet other committee members, you get to persuade them. You might do a minority report. All this stuff happens right before. We were told um, just a few weeks ago that, in fact, our meeting would be moved up to July 30th. So that gives us less time to organize. 
We were not given a list of fellow committee members, even a roster of names, contact info. We were given nothing. So basically we on our own had to start trying to go in Facebook groups or go on Twitter and like, hey, are you a rules committee member? Send us rules committee members so we could talk to them. Right. So basically like a month before our meeting, maybe, maybe three weeks, me and a colleague of mine, Maggie, um, we coordinated a grassroots meeting in lieu of the official campaign because they hadn't contacted anyone. So we just met and tried to gauge interest, like if anyone was making proposals, um, what they wanted to focus on, because it's pointless to sort of propose things when we don't even have support from the Bernie right, side right. of the committee. So we were, you know, trying to get this stuff going and people had questions. How do you even propose anything? What's the format? You have to have a very specific format. Like you have to read through all of this detailed, like it's almost like policy legalese where you have to insert lines into the charter to make changes. So it's not something that's intuitive. So we started trying to get that stuff going um, about a month ago. And then the Bernie campaign finally contacted us one day before the proposals were due just to say, hey, we'd like to call a meeting Tuesday or Wednesday, which is the day before the actual meeting. Um, you know, what time are you available? So about 40 people got on this call, I would guess. And Jeff Weaver led the call. He was speaking, uh, you know, for Bernie, it seemed. Mm. And he said, you know, the rules is a important place. This is where these unity reform commission changes were made. And, and basically we've already struck a deal with the Biden campaign to, um, do this unity proposal that myself, meaning Jeff Weaver, Larry Cohen, and they said a Biden committee member would be speaking on behalf of in the meeting and that they were going to be calling the rest of us that day and asking us to withdraw our amendment. Wow, yeah, that's just wild. And so let's talk about that uh, unity resolution that they came up with the Biden campaign that they didn't let you know about. It seems to me like it has absolutely no teeth whatsoever. Why? So the criticism that I'm hearing from the left is, is why would Bernie be okay with that? Like, where did the fight go that he used to have? Do you feel like he's lost his fight? Do you think that this resolution was a, an acceptable um, in-between medium? Or what are your thoughts on this? I mean, just from going through all of this, I don't have any hard evidence of this, but just my gut tells me that Bernie, you know, saw the writing on the wall. He knew he wasn't going to be able to get, you know, go anywhere with the campaign that after South Carolina, Biden was the candidate. So I think something was some agreement was made where he sort of kept his standing in the Senate or you know, maybe Jeff Weaver or someone, you know, Larry Cohen will have some sort of position. I don't know, but it just seems like they made sort of like a deal for individuals rather than the movement. Um, I yeah. mean, the, the unity resolution, which ended up being presented first, was to me just vague platitudes. Yeah. There's no binding language in it. It says something about 
uh, making improvements to the 2024 nominating process, maintaining advances. Like it uses these very vague phrases that it's yeah. like, what, you know, if we aren't changing the charter, if we're not making rules permanent, then it's not binding. So what are we doing here? You know, like Maggie Wonderly proposed to make the superdelegates change from the Unity Reform Commission permanent. Right. And they told her to drop it. So it's like, why wouldn't we push for at least that, at yeah, least right. to make that one rule permanent if you're going to add, because this is just one cycle and it's saying, it's basically, in my opinion, a handshake deal. Yeah. It's like, you know, okay, you know, we're on the same side, unity, let's, all right, you know, and then basically after Jeff Weaver said they would be encouraging everyone to withdraw, he said, we are, you know, you should heed the representatives of Bernie. This is what Bernie wants. Um, and I asked, well, what if we don't decide to drop our proposals, then what? And he said, well, it's your right as a rules committee member to propose. However, this isn't what Bernie wants. You are possibly interfering with our agreement um, and the sort of advancement of this movement. And we are going to tell everyone to vote against you. That's, ab that's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, to say that you're going against the movement is the opposite of truth. I think- First of all, he's not a part of the movement, frankly. He's a, I agree. You know, a consultant class middle manager type. And I think the problem is, is that there's many, 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 I mean, millions of us who sort of dropped it all because we really believed in the values that Bernie represented, um, the policies he was putting forward. We were sort of true believers. And, you know, I know lawyers who quit their job to work on the campaign. I know people all over the country um, who really believed in this Bernie movement. And I think it's just really arrogant, frankly, for people like Larry Cohen or Jeff Weaver to sort of act like they're the deal makers and they know what's best and we need to fall in line because really they wouldn't have any status whatsoever if it wasn't for us. I agree. I think you hit the <laughs> nail on the head though by saying that Jeff Weaver is part of the consulting class. I think there's two, I mean, if you look at the Bernie Sanders campaign from the outside, I think you can see that there are two internal factions, right? One faction is the politicos, right? The, the consultants, the professional, um, advisors to campaigns this is their job this is what they do right so they don't For necessarily sure. have any any uh, set loyalty to any sort of principle or to a movement or anything like that then you have the grassroots activists right these folks are very committed to the movement they're very committed to an ideology they're very principled and mm -hmm. i've oftentimes seen these two factions butting heads within the campaign because there was obviously um hires from both sides of the spectrum mm -hmm. So I think I think you're right on that. I think Jeff comes from this other this other side. And I think a clear sign of that was when the first thing he did when Bernie suspended his campaign was start a, a 501c4 to raise money for Biden, in which he said That's he was probably bad. going to take money from corporations, big donors, all of it. This guy is clearly not committed to Bernie Sanders ideals. So it's it's surprising to me. If we weren't sure the co-option was complete, he called it a future to believe in. <laughs> And then Bernie made him change the name. I mean, yeah. I, I, why Bernie would continue to listen to this guy is honestly surprising to me. I don't understand. 
I see but more than Nina Turner's what... as being the the folks that should really be getting his ear. That's just my opinion, though. Nina was also on the rules committee. Yeah. Yeah, she so was on the community reform committee um, as well. That's actually the first time I met Nina was was at the URC meeting. So what and does Nina actually, Nina actually, that. she voted against my amendment. Did so. she really? Yeah, and she didn't speak or anything in the meeting, so. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. That's heartbreaking. Yeah, so. so she was going to tow the company line there. All right, so who who voted in support of your amendment? Um, I had 15 yeses, 148 noes, and nine abstentions. The 15 yeses were all folks that were in the meetings that me and Maggie organized to sort of teach people how to do a proposal and walk people through the process. And I think just because they knew I was in Iowa, I truly believe that this reform would help people with disabilities, people who work second shift, third shift, right. people with families, you know, and just, I mean, the whole thing with Iowa is they blamed it on this app, but it's like- It wasn't just the app. the app. Yeah, I was there. It wasn't yeah. just the app. It was deliberately, you know, I think they intended the app to fail because why would you have like a dozen people in the call center to get these caucus results when the app, you know, like t less than 25% of the results went through the app successfully. That's right. The rest of us were calling, calling, calling. I mean, people th were calling me for three days later, like we just wanted to double check. We just wanted to double check and you couldn't even get through on the hotline. So the, the official results for Iowa were, Iowa were not in for over two weeks. That's right. How does that look for voters? So I was in precinct 80, was, which is where they had, where Bernie won, like completely dominated that caucus. It was, it was, he had double the votes of everybody else practically. But for some reason, the precinct captain, not for Bernie, or what do they call the people that actually run the caucus? I guess they have the a chair. Different chair, yeah. Yeah. So for whatever reason, and we stayed till the bitter end there, I was live streaming from there. And for whatever reason, after I left and the count had been five delegates for Bernie and four for Pete, all of a sudden it became a tiebreaker and they did a coin flip, which is absolutely not yeah. in what she was supposed to do in the rules. Because she- Oh, wow, saying, you saw an actual coin flip. Yeah. Only read about it. So that's interesting. Yeah. It's so they yeah. ended up having to give the delegate back to, to Bernie because we had the whole thing on video too, which was very uh, prescient. But, but it was remarkable to me because after after spending three or four hours with this with this particular chair, I didn't think she was intentionally being malicious. I think she just didn't know the rules and thought she was doing the right thing. Right. They're deliberate. I mean, they're very confusing. The caucus math is confusing. Right. Other problems being like the social pressure of caucusing. Like if you walk into a room and everyone's on one side of the room. And there's like a few other candidates over here and no one's over there. I mean, are you going to go against your neighbors and go? I mean, it takes a lot of courage to do that. And then also it's sort of up to the campaigns a lot of the time to have the resources to have a representative at every caucus site right. to even gather, you know, attention for a candidate or talk to people about the candidate, have swag. At my caucus site, a Biden uh, representative was there and they had food. So when people came in, they were wow. feeding them, giving them cookies and stuff. And I was like, oh, I thought, I didn't know, I didn't think we could do that. Yeah, that seems like it should be against the rules. <laughs> so everyone was going over there to get the cookies. Wow. <laughs> and we had one like diehard Bernie person who 
got up the nerve to speak in front of the whole group and it was nerve wracking because everyone was just like, so the fact that you can't place a secret vote, right? I think is also problematic for that reason. Right. And I remember when I flew into Cedar Rapids, uh, you know, two days before the caucus, I was talking to some folks up there and I had more than one person I interviewed basically tell me that they weren't going to be able to caucus, not because they didn't want to, but because of their work. Right. They couldn't get the time off work or they were working two jobs even just to make ends meet. So there's clearly a, a method here that is not fair towards poorer people. And I think it does need to be revised. It needs to be reformed. It's, it's just generally not as democratic as it could be. And I'm surprised to see so many DNC members not willing to see that. That's shocking. Actually, one of the proposals that you know, one of our committee members actually was bullied into dropping because she didn't want to go against Bernie's wishes. She dropped a proposal that would have made the first four states in the primary more representational. So that was on the table. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, why are we, why are New Hampshire and Iowa the first states? I mean. Right, right. Shouldn't it be something more populous or something? Yeah. But the fact that they didn't even want to hear, they didn't even want to discuss. Yeah. Like, wouldn't that make the party look better if we had a debate on these issues? And then they can, they already told people how to vote. They told them to vote against us and they did. So what are you afraid of at the end of the day? It's like, you don't even want to hear. They're just like, la, 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 yeah, la. Exactly I mean, right, it's Sean. that childish. <laughs> when we were in the breakout room and this whole fight was going on during resolution seven, like they were, can, you know. Can you hold that like for a second? There's a giant trunk outside, just in case the audio gets funky. Really? Do you hear that? Maybe it's just here. Oh, yeah, it. truck, I hear it. Yeah, all of a sudden. I live on in a residential area. I have no idea what this is. But it's getting closer. Now you're getting a giant package. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I did order a new TV. <laughs> it better not be that big, though. Shit, man. My neighbor's been doing construction, so maybe it's some sort of delivery. Seems to be slowing. Okay, I think it's going away. I just didn't want to have bad at. I was like, hold on. No, it's still, hang on. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's getting more difficult. Okay, I think we might be okay. All right, so let's um, cut in because I want to talk about the shenanigans. So let's pick up where you're introducing that situation. Resolution seven, I guess it was, right? Right. So um, what I was going to say is uh, there was a lot of schoolyard talk going on in this breakout room that they had us in that wasn't didn't end up showing on the live stream. Yeah. But some of the insults from the, you know, Biden side people were, and this is actually an imitation of the guy. His name was Reedy from Mississippi. Um, look him up. Yeah. He goes. You guys weren't going to win anyway. <laughs> and someone said, you're children. We need unity and all this stuff. And we're just, but I guess I should talk about what happened. Yeah, let's talk about what led up to that situation. By the way, I do know that guy you're talking about. I have met him before and I could see him doing that. What a pill. Did I just say that out loud? Um, anyway, but <laughs> let's talk about that. Resolution seven is what led up to them breaking, going into this breakout room and just going after Bernie supporters in a very mean fashion. What led up to that? 
So we didn't actually understand sort of the trickery going on until later on, but I'll walk you through the process. So starting when we, you know, so basically there's a Zoom meeting and that's where the communication aspect of the meeting is taking place. The video, you know, if you are about to speak, they put you in this area and then they unmute you and move you, you know, whatever. Right. So all this stuff is going. And then to actually vote we were in a secure portal the dnc portal so you would vote yes no abstain in that portal basically resolution seven came up brent welder was presenting it it was to make uh to ensure that dnc members couldn't be lobbyists basically yeah so which he you would think would be a good thing except that half the dnc membership if people don't know this half of them are absolutely lobbyists Again, correct, but again, it's not something that necessarily was expected to pass, but worth mentioning, you know, worth, yeah, worth vigorous for. debate, you know. 100%. And it makes the Democrats look better, frankly, like if they didn't try to force people not to talk on these issues. But anyway, so Brett was speaking and typically at the point where the person who's speaking on behalf of the amendment comes up, you would then go into the portal and be able to start voting. So I go over to vote, yes. I was one of the handful of people that were gonna vote yes. And uh, it said there are no votes available at this time. So all the folks that me and Maggie had organized were in this separate like Slack chat, like going back and forth, like, oh, I can't vote, what's going on? Oh, I contacted the help desk. It's a technical difficulty. They're working on it. That seems suspicious. Okay. Well, I didn't know yet. So um, then we then they have someone come up and speak against a lobbyist, of course. Maria Cardona. She works for Dewey Square Group. I saw this video. She she is a fossil fuel lobbyist. Oh no, she was the chair, but she wasn't the person speaking against it. There was two guys. Oh, okay. I saw a speech. Um, I don't have the name here, but okay. yes. Yeah, so the first guy goes up to speak against it. He's basically like, I'm a good guy and I'm a lobbyist. Why would we do this? You know? <laughs> And this isn't the setting like we basically they're arguing that DNC members should be the ones discussing this, not us riffraff, like brought in by the campaigns, like actually bringing in new members to the party. No, we don't want to do that. We want to just talk amongst ourselves. Um, so then he spoke against it and then they had another person speak against it, which was odd. I don't think there were ever two against speakers. Mm. So then, so another thing is there's no chat in the Zoom meeting. Right. So you couldn't interact with anyone other than through your video screen. So if they hadn't unmuted you, you can't actually make a motion. And what, what the parliamentarian said earlier in the meeting is, oh, because of COVID, we had to like pre-select who was going to speak in what order and we'll be, Oof. you know, unmuting you and whatnot. So they made it seem like there wasn't going to be the need for any motions or whatever. So the second guy comes up to speak against uh, resolution seven, and then he goes, and now I motion to table this. And then they put someone else in and unmuted them, some random guy, and he goes, I second it. And we're like, what? And you yeah, couldn't. that's not right. There was no way to say like motion to untable, bring it to a vote. And so I'm like, I'm like, oh my God, what do I do? So I'm like doing this. I'm like motion. <laughs> You know, and then so I'm holding up a sign. I'm uh, going into my. I actually. She's, you're writing out really quickly. Fuck you. 
<laughs> well, I actually missed the last vote because not on seven, but on eight, because I was trying to figure out how to untable it. So I wrote an email to the secretary, Jason Ray, and mm -hmm. I said, motion to untable, there's no chat, how do we do this? So basically then they said, okay, there's been a motion to table this, now we're gonna vote. And then you look at the portal and it was up for a vote, motion to table, and then you could vote. And I was like, oh, I thought there was technical difficulties. Now yeah, all of a so sudden- skipped the one where you could have actually had a say in what you wanted to have happen, but the well, minute that it went to tabling, it was working again perfectly. We could have already started rolling in votes while they were speaking, but there right. were technical difficulties. Yeah, I'm not buying that. So, yeah, I'm not buying it now, but at the time it like all happened, you know, you didn't realize right. what was going on. I actually didn't even realize there wasn't a chat until that point where you wanted to make a motion. Yeah. So now you can see how COVID is being used as an excuse to even <laughs> further limit democracy. I mean, right. they moved up the meetings. They put all these restrictions on being able to even make a proposal, even make a motion which Hillary's people allowed everyone to make a proposal. Right. It wasn't that restrictive. This is actually worse. It's gotten worse from 2016, in my opinion. Right. Frankly, I think it's because they have the excuse of COVID to be able to make it worse. Like, right. I think that's definitely by design. Oh, it's absolutely by uh -huh. design. And in fact, the parliamentarian, and I've seen this at, and I can't remember which meeting it was at, but they're not necessarily there to hold up a fair parliamentary system. They're actually there to assist the chair in getting the chair's way. So oftentimes right. they're looking for parliamentary rules that they can instate to back up what the chair wants, right? So it's not good. Well, the one thing that stuck out when I rewatched the video, because then when you watch, what had happened was when they did this, when they did the motion, then all hell broke loose. People yeah. were yelling back and forth. I was like, oh, I got to get someone to pull this video before they take it down. Because I was like, this is going to be crazy. There's no way they're going to let. Because everyone was yelling at each other, you know, cat calls back and forth, like total schoolyard stuff. Yeah, it was awesome. If you look at the live stream, though, you would have no idea anything went down because right. what they had done, very savvy of them, they put everyone except the people speaking on the issue into a separate breakout. Exactly. So all the chaos was going on and the chairs could hear it. They were just pretending they couldn't hear it. And it looks like a seamless meeting. It goes right into the motion passed to table it. It goes right into resolution eight, like nothing happened and and then um once the meeting was finally over they even had some post talk about john lewis which was shameful yeah. um they were speaking for john lewis um so then after that they finally were like when people already started leaving the meeting they were like oh now we'll um bring that seven back on the table so then they voted they ended up re bringing it on the table, and then they ended up bringing it up for a vote, but a substantial number of people were gone from the call, even people from our side that could have voted, you know, yes, and then we could have had the potential to do a minority report, which we didn't end up having even enough votes for, and we did try to do something after the meeting, but um, Here's another funny part. Then we went in right after into the portal to see the results because you're supposed to be able to see who voted on what. 
and they had transposed the results for the tabling and the vote for number seven. So we couldn't even get a count of how many people we needed for the minority report. Right. Bernie's can't, uh, another thing Jeff Weaver said on the call the night before was, we will not be supporting a minority report. And it's almost impossible to have a minority report during COVID right. without the direct support of the campaign because they have all the contact info for all of the committee members to be able to quickly reach out to people to get a signature. You had to get a physical signature within two hours. Someone that's had incre- to write. That's incredibly insane at this point. Someone had to write an actual yeah. you know, minority report resolution. I mean, and that then makes sense if you're meeting in person and everybody's there at the hotel and in rooms, but on the internet right. like this, how are you supposed to make exactly. that happen? Yeah, that rule was not changed. That was a rule change that Maggie was going to propose, but then they made her drop it. <sighs> During like, you know, she wanted to be able to speak on the permanent superdelegates uh, amendment. So in order to be able to speak on that, she had to like negotiate away some of the additional proposals. And one of them was to, you know, that a email would act as a signature in the case of the minority report. But at that point she was like, it's a moot point because the campaign's not going to support a minority report. And just for listeners who aren't aware of what a minority report is, a minority report is basically if you get 25% of the committee to be in the minority on a particular resolution and you get them to sign within two hours, like a document, Right. Then you can bring the amendment in front of everyone in the whole delegation, all the delegates, and then it goes up for a vote to the larger delegation. So it can actually like supersede the work on the committee. And then a lot, it gets a lot more visibility and it gets talked about more. So you would think DNC members being a lobbyist or making superdelegates permanent, you know, the change of the Unity Reform Commission permanent right. where they on the second ballot might be something that we would want the larger delegation to think about, conversate about, yeah. <laughs> to change minds over time, or even the Iowa caucuses. What about discussing that? We're just going to pretend that didn't happen. Yeah, I don't. Even Tom Perez said it was like a, you know, an show. epic failure. Yeah. So what, you know, what are you doing? So, you know, I think you were right when you, you, when you mentioned the consulting class, I I think all of these things sort of fall back to the consulting class and the fact that they don't want to let go of their power. And the unfortunate reality is the DNC is mainly made up of members of the consulting class, many of which are lobbyists. That's just what the DNC has, has morphed into at this point. So they're, right. they're sort of trying to serve two masters, Shauna. They want to serve the corporate donors, the corporate class, these, these professional class. And they're also trying to serve the working class at the same time. But these things really, at the end of the day, are pretty mutually exclusive, in my opinion. Unfortunately, the DNC is making decisions based on individual gain rather than the gain of the people, the movement, anything like that. It's just sort of yeah. So what do you think, um, you know, we had these uh, super delegates, you know, six or seven months ago, basically saying they would rather see the party burn to the ground than let Bernie Sanders be the nominee. Uh, these folks, I think they actually meant that. So when they said that, they're, they're, it seems to me that they're okay with losing the White House, losing the election, 
as long as they all get to keep their jobs. I, that's how at least it comes across to me. What are your thoughts on that? I have an interesting perspective on this. So being there for the Unity Reform Commission, like the last meeting in Chicago, yeah. I actually had a lot of compassion for the superdelegates who spoke strangely. But let me break it down for you. Um, I was like, before that, I couldn't wrap my head around why, why jeopardize like bringing in new voters, making it look undemocratic, you know, right. why keep superdelegates? I don't get it. But then a lot of folks, and it was a lot of black women who were getting up and speaking and saying, you know, I've worked my whole life to get to the place where I'm at, you know, and you feel for them like they did. The Democratic Party said, you run for office, you know, we're going to back you, we're going to give you support, we're going to, you know, you're going to be a part of the club and we're going to, you know, work with you on this and then, but you're going to, you know, go with the group on things and like, yeah. but they did individually become someone. They they lifted themselves up by their bootstraps or whatnot. And those were the speeches that they were giving that were like, I mean, there were tears in their eyes and I totally got that. I understood, you know, that they had worked so hard and like, who knows what their circumstances were or where they came from, but it was as though you'd be stripping away their life's work. Because these were super delegates that were saying this? Yes, I at the meeting. So I really had a, I don't, at the end of the day, I still disagree that it's good for democracy. Yeah, it's not I, good for democracy, yeah. But I think it's an emotional, uh -huh. I think the whole thing is not logical. I think there's a lot of pain and a lot of emotion and a lot of like stuff behind it that is like something that I learned the reasoning behind and I actually had compassionate compassion for and also I feel like shame on you DNC yeah for right, like doing it's, again it's a form of tokenization that's not the vast exactly. majority of them that's like a handful of superdelegates not the vast majority of superdelegates but yeah that's what they're using they're using them as a token thing and it's effective I, I do right. know what you're no. saying yeah it was really sad and just like shameful it is and shameful. i it don't is. blame those individuals for their perspective i had a lot of empathy like i i'm a woman doing work in politics mostly unpaid but uh i know what it's like i know what it's like to be in a room full of people where you feel like you have to scrap it up and like fight hard to even get your i mean even in this meeting oh, i had yeah. to scrap it up to even be heard. I mean, I've been in that in those rooms. And so I can understand over a lifetime of, you know, fighting to be in office and getting that status that you don't want to let go of it. So but it's about the bigger picture at the end exactly. of the day. It's about democracy. So it's like maybe we could keep the status of the superdelegate, just the the informal word superdelegate without it having the power. Right. They, sh they shouldn't be allowed to thwart the will of their voters or their constituents, especially if they're exactly. elected officials, you know what I'm saying? Right. Um, let me ask you, this other thing that's going on I want to ask you about is, so now we have delegates that are sort of rebelling against the Bernie Sanders campaign because they want Medicare for all. I, I think, I, I understand why this is happening. I think in a way it's smart. If Bernie wants to give up the ghost and not fight the fight anymore, it's, I think it's good that his, his followers do. I think they shouldn't just roll over and hand their bite, their uh, votes over to Biden. He hasn't done anything to earn those votes. Like he could come out tomorrow and say, I support Medicare for all, and he would be able to secure this election. 
but he's refusing to do that. He's saying right. the opposite. So what are your feelings now on these delegates that are banding together and saying we're not going to just give them our vote, this is what we want, and they're sort of putting their foot down. Where do you stand on that situation? I mean, I totally support it. I'm a Medicare for all person. That's like my top issue. And I think healthcare is a human right. Um, so, and but it's a foregone conclusion. Biden has all the votes. It's all wrapped up. They've whipped people. By, Bernie's campaign has not participated in any of this. They did not whip votes, even for Medicare for all. I mean, so it's like, if we're going to do these organizing things behind the scenes, which we did on rules and which people did on platform and whatnot, it's largely symbolic right. um, because we don't have the numbers. But I say go for it. I mean, what are we doing? Like, I mean, right. if we want to make any changes, we have to keep these discussions going. We have to keep pushing. It's like just rolling over and going along with the program isn't going to Make any it's not change. an option if you want to change. Yeah, I agree. So if I was a delegate, I would be doing the same. I'm just, I was just on, I'm part of the delegation, but I'm on, was not formally a delegate, just on the rules committee, but I would be voting no. Right on. So what on other egregious things happened at that meeting um, that you haven't talked about yet happened? Were there other, was there other moments that were just hair raising? No, I think those were the main moments. I think also, you know, the fact that folks like Jeff Weaver and Larry Cohen are, you know, asking other people who did work on the Unity Reform Commission to drop their amendments and then they're going up and being the public face of the Bernie campaign. It's like kind of, again, I'm not one to bring identity into it, but it's like, what are we doing, you know, Bernie, as far as it reinforce, you know, re just like promoting these 70 something year old white men that are like part of Bernie's inner circle and not lifting up, you know, young leaders that could continue to make a difference like beyond Bernie. Right. So that was also, you know, sad to see that they like were the public faces of the unity resolution. And I mean, there were five or so amendments that had to do with superdelegates that were dropped. Um, because of yeah, this. Yeah, Shauna, it just seems so odd to me that they fought so hard in 2016 for these reforms. Why wouldn't you go the extra mile now in 2020 to make them permanent? It just doesn't seem logical to me. Because they had their deal and those were the parameters a, of- Yeah, I hear you, but it's a meaningless but, but, deal. It's a, it's a, it's, they got nothing for it. They literally got nothing for it. They gave away the entire kitchen sink, you know? Exactly, so my criticism would be if you, intended to make this deal why wasn't our meeting weeks before right. where we had a meeting of the rule the bernie side of the rules committee jeff weaver could lead it and he'd tell us this is on the table this is what bernie thinks what do you guys think uh we would have to ask you to drop your amendments what do you feel about that but they didn't ha they had no intention of actually having a real committee they were acting on Bernie's behalf as these sort of negotiators and the rest of us were just puppet stand in like mannequin people that were supposed to just go with whatever they told us to do. There wasn't an actual functioning committee. And I think they would have gotten what they wanted in the end if they did that, but it would have voted much well better for them in our eyes. I mean, 
some of the people on the committee were people who ran for office, who got endorsed by Bernie, who are going to keep this movement going forward. And it's like, again, are you afraid of democracy at the end of the day? Yeah. Because I think they could have gotten their same outcome with by also while also incorporating the rest of the committee. They could have. And frankly, the most insulting part of it was that we had done all of this research work, writing our proposals, reading all of this dense text of the charter and the delegate selection rules and all this stuff to be able to even make a proposal. And they had the nerve to not even tell us until after we did all that work that it didn't matter anyways. Mm. Why not tell us up front? You yeah. know, we're doing the negotiating. Don't make any proposals. It's not worth the work. But they didn't even, you know, it was just yeah, that's you know, kind of infuriating. I mean, that's why I ended up negotiating. I said I would drop two of my proposals if I was able to speak to the um, expanding democracy by increasing voter participation, just because I had worked so hard. I had been in yeah. Iowa. I felt like I owed it to all the people I came into contact with in Iowa who right. went through this, all the other precinct captains, you know, that this would get talked about and that, you know, these issues would be raised, especially folks with disabilities that couldn't caucus. I mean, there was changes in the Unity Reform Commission that were supposed to make it easier for folks with disabilities, but in practice, they weren't in place. So that's why it's not good enough. So yeah. I just, you know, and it yeah. was really nerve wracking to get up there in front of Barney Frank and everyone, and you know everyone hates you and does not want you to speak, and yeah. like is like, why are you speaking right now? So I was just shaking. <laughs> no, you did a good job though. Let me ask you this: a lot of these folks actually just abstained from voting, which sort of seems like a cop out to me. Um, those were mainly folks that. I think we're probably Bernie people that didn't want to vote uh, no on this stuff. They actually wanted to vote yes, but then because of this call, they just will all abstain then. Well, how, who are those people? Can you talk about that a little bit or is that sort of off the table? I don't have the chart in front of me and I don't want to misquote. I know okay. Larry Cullen was one who abstained from most of the yeah, reforms. I think it's because they don't want to be on record saying no, which was the deal that was made with the Biden campaign yeah, that vote like, in a certain way. Because so it's I really think not they, on brand for them. Larry Cohen has been such a, a fighter for, for fixing the DNC along with uh, Jim Zogby that it's kind of shocking to see that happen. Yeah, he voted, uh, he abstained from the vote on corporate lobbyists being DNC members. He abstained on mine. Uh, Nina Turner voted against mine. So I encourage everyone, if you want to see, I want everyone to see my proposal and just think about why would anyone vote against this? Yeah. So you can do that by going to my Twitter. It's the Shauna East, T-H-E-S-H-A-N-A-E-A-S-T. It's the pinned post. If you look at that, there's a clip of me giving the presentation. But then if you go under in the comments, there's the full clip. A five yeah. minute. I'll actually include this in, the clip in the in our video. So and then I have all the details and further comments below. I have all the votes right. so you can see how everyone voted. And then just think about what I said and whether you believe me after you see the presentation, how people voted. I mean, we have John Podesta voting along the lines with Nina Turner. I know, I'm sorry. I don't want to like upset anyone. No, I know. Anyone. I just don't understand what happened there with Nina. My God. 
Yeah. That's just, I just don't understand. I don't understand where did the fight go? Where was all of that vim and vigor from the Bernie Sanders campaign? It just seems to have dissipated. And I think people are more angry than ever. I mean, we have a bunch of evictions coming down the pike now because people can't pay their rent. They don't have their jobs back. There's no emergency UBI. There's no healthcare. I mean, everything's sort of coming to head right now. It's all very dire. And now we need fighters more than ever. You know, where we don't need right. corporate lobbyists. We need fighters that are going to stand up for the people. Yeah, I just think it's up to us. You know, like yeah. I think really disheartening. Like it's easy for people like me or whoever to just give up. I mean, I personally, it's a pathological problem where I don't know what to do with myself if I'm not fighting. <laughs> so lucky, luckily I wake up and have that drive, but I can see why people would drop out and get burnout and not want to do it yeah. anymore. It's exhausting. I mean, it's abusive. You, you are abused. You know, you are, just it's politics. It's politics. The and the, look, the party machinations, they want to beat it out of progressives. They don't want progressives in the party. They want to keep right. carrying on with their corporate bullshit. So they, they exactly. it's by design. They want to, so they want to wear we, all of us out. So I think my strategy has been to continue to, you know, pull up my folding chair to the tables to quote Shirley Chisholm, the places you're not invited, you know, you still have to bring a folding chair to those tables <laughs> because... Seriously, I'm scared, That's you know, who's the candidate going to be if we're not there to like expose it, to push, to yeah. bring it's up very the dystopian. Like, right. And I, I don't know that there's going to be another candidate until AOC, fingers crossed, where people like us will be in those rooms. Right. So right. Um, I'm not sure what 2024 looks like. But, so that's why I wanted to give it my all this time with, you know, since I have been involved with Bernie and you know. Well, you put up the good fight. I thought, um, I think your resolution was definitely worthy of consideration and it should have been passed in a perfect world. Um, and I think you're pretty spot on in your analysis of everything else as far as what the DNC is doing and as far as corporate lobbyists, et cetera. And again, they're going to continue to try to serve two masters until it just completely destroys the party because if the change hasn't come by now, it, I, I'm convinced it's not going to come. They just, they don't want to see it. They don't want to hear it. And things just keep getting worse. 82% of the new wealth last year went to the 1%. It does, this is untenable. Like, where does this end? And they're not resisting anything. All of the areas where they, they have the bipartisanship with the GOP, right? The economic areas are very detrimental to, to your average American worker. And this is why we have Trump as president, because fascism comes from income inequality and from these things being ignored. So I don't, you know, I don't know what's going to happen in the next eight years, four years, even November, but I'm not, ex I don't have high expectations for anything fixing itself anytime soon. And I think we have to look outside of electoral politics if we really for want sure. things to change in the country. Yeah, I'm involved with the Poor People's Campaign. It's I not love the Poor People's Campaign. Reverend Barber is oh. amazing. It is time for Americans to find out the truth about poverty for all Americans. The growing gap between the rich and the poor in this country is a direct result of policy decisions, not the immorality and the lack of personal um, work of poor people. Policy decisions made here in Washington and in our state capitals, but those decisions have been supported by well-funded myths. Corporate interests have sent their representatives here to preach 
personal responsibility and the danger of government intervention, but the truth is we must take a collective responsibility for the inequality, the unjust laws and systems created. God did not make us poor. Greed and abuse and power make us poor. I don't find anywhere in the scripture where Jesus said that it was Caesar's job to feed the poor and to clothe the widows and to take care of the orphans. He said it was the church's. It's the church's responsibility. It's the community's responsibility. It's your neighbor's responsibility. It's your, it's your responsibility as a neighbor to do those things. The first of all, it's interesting that you all would define yourself as Caesar. That in itself is kind of strange. I mean, we need to stop for a minute. They even hear that. Yeah. We haven't read the 2,000 scriptures in the Bible that talk about how societies are supposed to treat the poor, the immigrant, the least of these, and left out. And you don't know that Jesus started his first sermon with good news to the protocols. That's a Greek word, which means those who have been made poor by economic systems. I mean, it really is shocking that folk are saying the same thing that we heard people say about slavery. Slaves just work hard and wait. Civil rights, we don't yeah. need to be involved, just work right. hard and wait. Uh -huh. Social security, you know, people saying people were against social security and they said God was against it. It's, it is, I mean, it is bothersome that in the 21st century we still have these weak, tired, old mythologies lying about the war on poverty right. when the Russell Sage Foundation actually says, actually says that it did decrease poverty, but we left the field. So I would say to all of us, Democrats and Republicans, we brought you people, Republicans, Democrats, whites and blacks, see the people, stop just talking about I know poverty, and hear what these folk are saying, and put together a full plan to deal with this issue. This is, this is traumatic to see this happening in America today, that people would stick with their partisan line and ignore the people that are really hurting. Yeah, so that's where I'm putting my efforts now Mark. that... Bernie's over, but I think, you know, we need to think about all, any place we can insert ourselves to make the demands, you know, for working people, I think we need to keep at it, so.